Hey everybody, what's up? This is Ro. Just wanted to drop a quick message here before the show gets started. The guest that we had on the show tonight that we were interviewing during the call, Skype farted out and dropped a couple of times. It cleaned itself back up and was fine, you know, about, I'd say, three quarters of the way through the show. Um, it was perfect and fine. But during the beginning of the show, or beginning of the interview rather, I asked the guest a couple of questions and Skype kind of just cuts off and goes quiet. So, you're going to hear one or two sentences here and there where the call just drops out and then it comes back. I know it's probably not a big deal for most of you because you guys are used to has, having weird Skype issues from time to time. But nonetheless, I just felt the need to drop this in here and let you know. Thanks. Peace. You are interested in the unknown, the mysterious, the unexplainable. That is why you are here. Hey everybody, what's up? Welcome back to, uh, this is yeah, probably going to be, I know they know that by now too. <laughs> oh, I try to open the show differently and look what you do to me. <laughs> I screwed it up cause I'm a screwer upper. Well, let's, uh, let's get going. We'll, we'll talk about the rest of the stuff at the, the show closing. This is our last episode on magic for probably a little while. We've covered it pretty thoroughly and this one kind of fell into our lap. So it was one of those situations where it was like, all right, I guess we're meant to cover it one more time. And right. tonight we have Mr. Daniel Harms. Daniel Harms has re-released a grimoire. Well, what, what would you call it? It's a, I, I guess, Christian magic. Is that? It's a compendium of Christian magic. I suppose. It's, yeah, be the best word. Christian magic. So let that seep into your heads for a second. But he's re-released an old book called The Long Lost Friend, and we've got him on the show today to discuss the topic of the Pennsylvania Dutch and Pennsylvania Dutch hex magic, powwow magic. All of these things that when we recently released are something Wicked This Way show comes, and I briefly touched on it there. I couldn't find a whole lot about it. Well, lo and behold, through the powers of everything that be, we were put in contact with Daniel Harms here, who released this book, and he sent me a promo copy. I read it, fell in love with it, immediately ordered a copy and sent it to you, and you got it, and then you read it. For you, you were you were like, yeah, I've seen this before, blah blah blah. Whereas I'm like, oh, this is this, and then you're like, yeah, uh huh. <laughs> so uh, yeah, you know, I've seen this movie lots of times. I'm What's not it? Who you think I am. <laughs> and I'm like, wow, how anticlimactic. Well, that's, but you're used to that by now. We got in touch with them, and I said, hey, would you be interested to come on the show and talk about this with us? Because so much of it for me is hard to comprehend the idea of magic and Christianity somehow melding it's that it blows my mind it goes back kind of to when me and you first started the show and we were talking about how things were were, where the lines blur where paranormal and science blur where religion and science blur where religion the paranormal blur and this is one of those areas where the two topics kind of coexist peacefully somehow together and somehow um in the sense of it it works so that's the reason why is because we as people put this hard lined structure on religion, whereas our, our ancestors really didn't, mm -hmm. you know, everything coexisted and we're the ones who have a hard time believing it, you know? Yeah. I guess let's jump into the interview with Mr. Daniel Harms and, uh, we'll see you guys at the flip side. Yay. Wee. Today we have with us Daniel Harms, who I guess I'm going to refer to you as an expert on what we're going to be talking about because you you actually brought this book back into production, for lack of a better term. We're going to be talking tonight about powwow magic, Pennsylvania Dutch, the long lost friend, all of these things all wrapped up into one. So, Danny, out there, yeah, give us a tour of who you are, what you do, how you've gotten into this stuff. Tell everybody about you. I'm a librarian and an author. I st wrote my first book when I was 17, and that was on uh, the topic of H.P. Lovecraft. Um, then from there, I uh, started moving out. I got interested in the Necronomicon and the various hoax Necronomicons that were out there. 
uh, the Necronomicon is a creation of H.P. Lovecraft, for those who don't know. Uh, that took me to an interest in grimoires, uh, books of magic that have come down through the ages. One of my most recent projects was the one we're going to talk about tonight, which is The Long Lost Friend, which is a book of Pennsylvania Dutch magic, folk healing and things of that sort. Let's get it all started right from the beginning, I guess. It centers around the Pennsylvania Dutch, which after reading your book, I've come to find out weren't really even Dutch. They were German. <laughs> so No, I'll... I mean, there's some debate as to whether I should co- be calling them Pennsylvania Dutch or Pennsylvania. I usually go with Dutch because that's what people generally um, know them as, and there's a lot of people who, of Pennsylvania Dutch extract who are actually fine with the, with the term, so I, that's what I usually go with. How did they get the name? How did how did they become known as the, the Pennsylvania Dutch? Uh, well, uh, Dutch is a corruption of Deutsch, which is German, and these were a group of people who came over, um, probably I think largely in the seventeenth, eighteenth centuries, from Germany um, to the New World, um, largely settled Pennsylvania due to its uh, tolerant attitude towards people of various faiths. Uh, which was not something they were getting in great quantities back home, especially for small religious groups. And this is why you um, uh, can now, even today, find groups like the Amish and the Mennonites living in Pennsylvania because um, William Penn had a very open policy toward people who wanted to move into that area in terms of what they what they would believe, and he was willing to leave them alone. So he just basically wanted to fill the area up with as many Christians as possible. Well, not even, well, that was kind of how they interpreted it. Um, I don't know if it was, I'd have to think about it in terms of whether other religious groups may have came over, but there were a lot of, I mean, at the time, unless you were Jewish, you were probably going to be Christian. So that's the people who generally came over and filled it up. So, I don't know what his his policy was broader than that. I'd have to check. Are we more or less just talking like folk religion here for the most part, or just a con- conglomeration of anything? Uh, in terms of the people who came over? Yeah. Um just all sorts of faiths. There were a lot of Lutherans. There were a lot of people from the Reformed Church. There were the Dunkers. There were the Anabaptists. There were, as I said, the Mennonites and the Amish. Um, Catholics as well. I think Homan, who we're going to talk to about in a few minutes, was uh, Catholic, most likely. Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot. they just all came over and settled. And um, they set up their their own society running alongside um, the, the English speakers in the area. Oh, Homan was Catholic. Is that? Did I hear you say that correctly? Uh, that's. It's likely he was Catholic. I don't want oh. to say one hundred percent. That's interesting. I'll bring that yeah, back up later. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. Well, what the crux of this book rotates around is powwow magic, and which essentially, if, if I'm right, that was folk magic. Correct. That's correct. Okay, so what what is powwow magic and how – now, I, I know you've been asked this probably a million times, but when, when people say magic, the first thing that comes to my mind is Wiccan, Wicca, things along that nature. And then and now you're talking about magic being brought over with, uh, I guess, folk religion. I'll say that again. Um, mm-hmm. How how does this all fit together? How does this work? Because the, you know, you, the first thing that pops into my mind is magic, witch trials – um, concerning with devils and dark powers, how does it all fit together? Me and Lobo have had this discussion. And he seems to have a, I, I mm-hmm. have a hard time conceptualizing how all this worked. And, and then you call it powwow and you're powwow and I think Indians, <laughs> you know, so mm-hmm. this all seems like a really weird stew to me. Well, it's, uh, it's not really too weird for most of the, I mean, this was, as you said, folk religion. We can start out with that as the basis for it. Basically, these are the rites and, you know, ceremonies, prayers, whatever you want to call them, that were not officially accepted in many cases, but that were nonetheless part of the, uh, part of the culture of, of a lot of people. Um, they, would, they would go to church and they, you know, they would do orthodox prayers, but maybe they'd go home and they'd you know, do another prayer specifically for you know, stopping bleeding or healing fever or something like that. And this was going on throughout Europe. Um, there's, not, there's a lot we don't know about it because it was – for the most part, all we've got is the people who were recording things, and generally the people who were recording things were people who were members of various churches, and didn't really want to um, to get you know to legitimize this or to write it down, and other people just weren't talking to them because you know they don't want to get in trouble for for doing all these things. But as I say, was this something that was kept behind closed doors and in secret, like nobody really talked about it, or was this? 
if you were a practitioner of this kind of stuff, was it something that you wanted people to know at the time? Was it something that people would flip out about if they knew you were doing it? Generally, these practitioners were um, embedded in a community. And this is a pre-modern community. There's, these aren't big places, so everybody kind of knows what everybody's business is already. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a there's an extent to which you didn't want to become too popular with it because then you know people have to that that attracts attention and then of the authorities and they're not they're often not too happy with people who practice this. But it had these people who you could go to if say, you know, you you were sick or your animal had been lamed or something had been stolen from your household. Um, they were called the uh, cunning folk in many cases. At least that's the English term for them. And people would just, you know, people would go to them. They were known members of the community and often were quite prestigious. Well, wasn't their stigma to be looked on as like gypsies or something like that as well? There was always this perception that uh, this magical power came from the outside. So, uh, yeah, people would say, Gypsies were often associated with magic, and there were probably some who, you know, would would sell that as a service. But a lot of people were also these were people who lived in that community, were known members of the community. Sometimes, you know, often, usually not among the richest people, but they were, you know, they had they were people who were known for years, and that actually helped them um, in terms of say um, the witch trials. And I want to point this out right now, which is that we're talking about the witch trials and magic. They're two things that should seem to go together, but in many cases they don't because practicing magic is, um, is basically, you know, using charms and spells and this sort of thing. Whereas the witch trials were about a secret conspiracy to go out and, you know, for people to meet in secret and worship the devil and plot against both God and, and the king or whoever the ruler was at the time. Mm-hmm. And in many cases, it would seem that, you know, if you were practicing magic to our modern eyes, you would be lumped in which, with witchcraft. And that wasn't necessarily how it always worked. It was uh, because, you know, generally what happened when you brought in a practitioner, someone would say, you know, someone said, well, we, we saw you doing this, you know, particular uh, spell to help somebody. Maybe you shouldn't be doing that, um, but uh, that that was generally what the response was, as opposed to say witch trials, which were more about, you know, larger social movements. About you know, they were very big in areas where there was religious conflict. They were very big in areas where there were various groups of people who were pitted against each other. It often was the result of somebody being mad at somebody else. Mm-hmm. And uh, if somebody is useful enough, in ter- say they're they have like the blood stopping charm, oh yeah, well you can you know call them into the Inquisition or to the local authorities or whoever is running the trials at that point, and you could turn them in. But then you know the next time you need to have blood stopped, well um, you're kind of out of luck. <laughs> so there is, I mean, I, a good example of this is uh, Tatuba from the Salem witch trials. Mm-hmm. Tatuba was the um, servant woman, um, ethnicity unknown, who was basically um, performing rituals for the young girls in Salem, or Salem Village rather, to uh, to see who their future husbands would be, which is kind of like the stock and trade of a lot of these people. Tatuba, you think they would throw the book at, given everything that happened in Salem? Mm-hmm. She was not executed. She was not tried. She turned in some people, sat in a cell for a while, and at the end, they just let her go. <laughs> I mean, this is, and this is what, what it's important to understand, that the whole thing about the witch trials, there is some overlap, and I won't say there isn't, but in a lot of cases, magic was, and this sort of, you know, community charming um, and other cunning folk activities were going along um, alongside the witch trials. And in many cases, the people who practiced them were just able to, you know, Grease some palms. Because, yeah, well, the palms were already greased. People knew that they could go to these people for help. They could go, keep going to these people for help if they hadn't been, you know, yeah. in prison exactly. or burned at the stake. So well, that, that's, that's how those two interact. How, how does the name powwow come about? Because powwow is pretty much associated, when you say powwow, I think of a bunch of Indians sitting around a fire smoking a peace pipe, you know, hosting a powwow. How does that fall into play? Because again, you've got a situation where this is Christian magic, but now you're throwing the Native American aspect into it. So where does that fit in? It, in a sense, it doesn't really. Um, the, it's, once again, going back to what we were talking about with the gypsies, the idea is that magical power comes from 
somewhere else. It doesn't come from, you know, it doesn't come from, you know, your own home community. It's off someplace else. Like, what are the it's like solar energy? <laughs> yeah. Well, more like the Egyptians. Um, how famous the Egyptians were for um, for their particular mystical knowledge. They were famous because they were all the way off over there. And you know, if somebody brings something back and says this is from Egypt, well, then that gives it you know some cachet. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was the same thing with the Native Americans. Uh, term powwow or the one that came through, I think, through the Algonquin was. Um, mutilated, we'll say, into powwow, uh, that was actually a term for what was primarily magic that came from Germany. <laughs> and people right. just didn't want, in a sense, didn't want to admit that it did. Um, I mean, if you look <laughs> at this stuff, if you, this is one of the reasons that I wrote this book and I was so interested in it that it got me writing it, was that there are so many, there's so much speculation to where this stuff comes from. Um, people have said, you know, these, this um, powwowing comes from the Druids, it comes from India, it comes from the Native Americans. And you go through the book and you're like, well, a lot of these are what really seem to be prayers of a sort, these charms, and a lot of these, um, uh, say, recipes involving herbs and things of that sort are actually using old world plants. So they can't really be Native American for, because they they wouldn't <laughs> have charms based on plants they had no access to. Mm-hmm. So um, that's I think that's it was really to make things more exotic and more and more interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because well, powwow sounds yeah. a lot better than Germanic magic. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and a lot. Of, I mean, once again, a lot of these charms are attributed to gypsies too. Yeah, I mean, that's. True. It's like, oh yeah, well, uh, we didn't we didn't have this in here. Somebody came up with this somewhere else, and then they gave it to us. Um, so that's that's what the that's what the thought behind it was. So the next thing we should probably jump into then would be uh, John George Hoffman, which I I said Holman Holman Holman. There I said <laughs> I did it again. <laughs> I told you I was going to do that too. Right. Um, I've never. I've just I've just been calling it Holman, and I've never had anybody really. Uh, Say you know, Dan, you're doing it wrong. But knowing me, I've probably mispronouncing <laughs> or something. Well, but yeah, tell us about this guy. Tell us about how what he what he did because I, I've from what I've been able to, to see when I've been researching of it, this is the only book that I've been able to discover of its kind. Or I've seen imitations, but they all point back to this. This was the essential book for this kind of magic, pr- pretty much. And this was the guy that brought it into. Uh, I, I guess. Well, I know ma- mainstream culture, but but there's no other way I could refer it to. But he was the one that brought it to the forefront, I guess, correct? Mm-hmm. Well, there was actually some other books on this topic, um, one of which I'm going to point out is called The Friend in Need, um, probably also published by Holman. There was actually an edition of this published in June by, I think it's the Pennsylvania German Folk Heritage Center. Um, so there were these books were floating around. Um, some of them were not very long. Some of them were just like scraps of material. These people would come over from Germany to America and pretty much in many cases, all they brought was the clothes on their backs and some books. Mm -hmm. And, um, in many cases that would be a, you know, it might be a full book of magic. It might be a printed book of magic. Um, it might be a few scraps of paper with some charms on them. Uh, and people would just keep them in their families. And what Holman did um, that was unusual is he's really started this publishing um, effort to get the to put this material out before people. Mm-hmm. Um, as for Holman himself, uh, he arrived in the United States in 1802, and uh, he seems to have moved around Pennsylvania quite a bit. He spent most of his time around Reading uh, in a place called Rose Valley. Mm-hmm. And he had three professions, um, one of which was uh, as a farmer, and he doesn't seem to have done very well at that. Um, <laughs> he was also a a healer. Um, there were some people who would, you know, people would go to because they didn't have, once again, these cunning folk, especially if, you know, all the surrounding doctors and pharmacists are, you know, speak English and you speak German, well, that's going to be a little awkward. So he was able to have a trade in that as well. He's got several testimonials in the book. Mm-hmm. And he's also a publisher. He would real he turned out a bunch of broadsides, just one page sheets on um, various ballads and prayers and hymns. And uh, also he would write about, you know, 
biblical topics. He wrote a small, he published a small catechism, and then he published this book as well, the the long lost friend. Mm-hmm. So this was part of his publishing effort, and this was probably the this is his most famous book that we're talking about right here. Mm-hmm. Didn't he write some kind of a what was it called a hymnal letter or something like that? If you had this letter, it was supposed to be very valuable, and it was a, a source of protection of some sort. Yeah, the heaven's letter. This is actually a a genre with a long and uh, distinguished pedigree, then there's a lot of these still floating around. They're heaven's letters. They're basically letters um, supposedly that came down from heaven to be copied and put up in people's houses. And they usually say, you know, be a good person. Don't work on the Sabbath. Um, If you keep this letter, you're going to get, your house will be protected from all of these ills. And uh, they were basically a charm that was very popular among the Pennsylvania Germans. And I think there's still some in circulation today. People would take these off to war with them or send them off to loved ones at war to protect them from getting shot or something like that? Is I, I remember reading something like that somewhere. Yeah, and the long-lost friend itself was was um, thought of that way too. I think there were a lot of people who uh, went into World War One or maybe in World War II with a copy of the long-lost friend with them to make sure that they were able to keep themselves safe. Wow. So it kind of became a Bible in its own sense. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. Because <laughs> I remember reading something about there were lots of uh, counterfeits of these letters floating around, and then there became uh, a situation where there was actually uh, a business in trying to validate if you actually had a real letter or not. And if you did have a real letter, it, it, the the value of it became so much more because it was an actual heaven's letter and or something like that. Um, well, it'd be hard because there's something so like that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Handwriting I don't analysis? Know. <laughs> I haven't heard about this, so I don't know. There are just so many – there's many different traditions of these floating around. Yeah. Um, and uh, they differ sometimes in large detail, sometimes in small ones. Um, but they you know, they have been – they were circulating throughout Europe, and, that, and then they came over to this country, and they've been circulating since. All right. Well, touching back on John Holman again um, – um, from what I'm gathering so far, he was a practitioner of this kind of magic then for the most part. He just essentially yes. gathered all these things and brought them over the states. And it sounds like that was what he did. He became the intermediate. If you couldn't get a doctor, you would call you would call this guy up and he would come and, you know, take care of your livestock. Or if you mm-hmm. had a problem, he would come in and work his magic. Yeah. Um, and he was, to be clear, he was one of, I think there were many of these people. In fact, I, I can't recall the name right now, but there was at least one other practitioner. Mountain Mary or something like that, I believe. Mountain Mary came before him, I believe. But it was it was somebody, I can't recall the man's name. I'd have to look it up. But uh, there was at least one other person in his immediate area. And there were probably others scattered out um, because we're getting, we still see charms, you know, circulating for, in those areas. But he was the one who actually sat down and said, okay, I'm writing a book of these. So, and I'm going to sell it to people so that they... So that, to make them widely available. That was his major contribution. And he was one of the first people to actually put his name right on the product. Because up until this point, a lot of books would obscure the names of people when they did things like this, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you wouldn't want to put your name on many books of magic because people would then... <laughs> come looking for you. <laughs> come looking for you and say, maybe you shouldn't be doing that. But, but he, he got was away very, with it? He was very upfront. It was Pennsylvania. It was the 19th century. He could... And uh, he realized that he could do that and he could fall, say, you know, I'm in a country that is freedom of the press. I'm allowed to publish this. And, um, you know, these are things that help people. These are ceremonies that, you know, shouldn't be seen as uh, something that's been, you know, that, that is looked down upon. You know, we have both, he makes a point, both Catholic and Reformed ministers uh, are practicing these things. Mm-hmm. And uh, maybe, you know, that's something that we really need to get these out there because they're basically out there to help people. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's what brings me to the whole Catholic thing, because now you've, you've talked about immigrants coming over and bringing their religions and things like that. You have the Amish, the Mennonites, um, all of these different religious practices. And then you have Mr. Holman coming over who's Catholic, but he's bringing these magical practices with him. Again, my brain starts to jar because <laughs> you're talking about Catholicism and magic and then you're also talking about people, the image of the Protestants versus the Catholics always comes to mind. How did this guy come over bringing this magical stuff with him and implement it into these com- these communities? Because these people weren't always the best of buds, you know. They weren't they, they weren't always like, "Hey, come on over and let's have a beer together," mm-hmm. you know. How how did he make this fly? Uh, he actually um, there wasn't once again it was Pennsylvania. It was there was a lot of <laughs> there was yeah, a Pennsylvania lot of sounds like Jersey yeah. back then. <laughs> <laughs> 
there was a lot of acceptance of the fact that there were people of different religious um, persuasions. And they, uh, it's correct, they didn't always get along perfectly. Um, but I think that it also helped that there was also sort of this um, other ongoing tension. I mean, the big tension locally wasn't, I, at least in terms of what I've, I've read, wasn't necessarily between different sects, though you would have that, you know, different forms of Christianity. It was between, you know, this community, which was, you know, a German community and an English community, mm-hmm. um, and how those people interacted. And once you, it's a classic case of where you have, uh, you know, a bunch of people who are, it's the, you know, I guess it's the classic alien invasion scenario, which is not exactly, <laughs> that is not exactly what you want to think of in terms of Pennsylvania history. I'm going to get in trouble for that. But anyway, um, but, no, no, fine, you know, but you know, you, you know, the classic alien movie, the aliens come to earth and everyone gets together and everyone, you know, they don't worry about, we don't worry about all our problems. We get together and we, you know, to, to face Put aside this, our differences. Yeah. Yes. And so that's, I think to some extent what happened here. Um, people, and to be honest, I don't know exactly what the religious persuasion was of most of Holman's clients. Yeah. Uh, I think there was at least one that was Lutheran. I, I can think of right off the top of my head. But this was this was you know it was seen as this this, pe- this person had this this sort of charm, and these charms were actually, as I said, practiced across several different sects. So it was much less of a well, you're Catholic and you're you Catholics do this this sort of strange thing over here it was something that people were doing in general and it's like well this guy's a catholic but you know he he does the same thing that you know we do other people do who are of our faith so we can call him in on this one <laughs> yeah he's cool let him slide <laughs> yeah <laughs> so again though um like this is this is something i was like okay I, I can't find a doctor my daughters could possibly die here you know, what are we going to do? Let's call this guy in and see what he can do. But the, again, this this wasn't something you normally let get around because the community might be weird about it. But it sounds to me like a lot of people did this kind of stuff and just didn't talk about it, though. Well, I, I think they did. There was some talk about it. The question is, you know, who's doing the talking? Mm-hmm. It's not something you really want to go into the newspaper and talk about. It's mm-hmm. not something you, you know, you want to announce from from the rooftops. But it is something that people know. And people mm-hmm. talk about and people, you know, say, well, you should probably go see this guy over here. He was able to help me. So why don't you, why don't you go talk to him about it? There, there was informal talk about it. But, you know, you, we get to the official record. There's not so much. That a lot of people try to take his ideas and run with them or try to copy his book? Uh, yes, actually. I think, let me, I mean, within 10 years, I'm just going to take a quick look at my timeline here. There were people who were already ripping off his book. Um, one of them actually put the name of the... T- a uh, 13th century um, purported magician and Albertus Magnus on it. So that was what? an 18th century. Yeah. Um, <laughs> this right here, yeah, 1837. He published it in 1820, 1837. There was already a, a rip-off text. Um, 1839, that was the Albertus Magnus one. We think he may have died in 1846. There's not really a record or thereabouts. There's not really a record of that. Um, but that's when shortly thereafter, probably within the next, oh, 10 years or so, you see three different translations of the long lost friend appear in English. Mm. So my sense is that he was reluctant to, maybe he was reluctant to have it translated into English. And then when he died, everyone said, Hey, well, we better get in here and do this. We, you know, <laughs> were um, the, uh, were the ripoffs changed a lot from the original context? Did people add their own flavor to it or change the spells at all or anything? Um, there were some there were some changes. I think the eighteen thirty, I think it was the eighteen thirty six one had basically had a lot of things in different orders. Eighteen thirty seven, sorry. It basically took two books and moved around all the charms and put them together. And they said, okay, well, this is this is a new book for us. Um, ah, change it by ten percent and get away with it. <laughs> yeah, um, and there was a tendency to keep adding things to the book as they went along and. As time went on, these became less and less about of a magical nature, more and more of a, you know, household recipe nature, like, you know, creating dyes and um, making really, you know, making good cider and things like that. Yeah, I've seen uh, <laughs> there was a recipe in one of them for how to make good beer. <laughs> I'm like, uh, okay. <laughs> 
his um, ear recipe in here. I'm trying to find somebody who's microbrewing in order to, to actually Red. try that one out. Yeah. Take a handful of hops, five or six gallons of water, about three tablespoons of ginger, half a gallon of molasses. Filter the water, hops, and ginger into a tub containing the molasses. <laughs> it sounds pretty wicked cool, actually. Um, yeah, it's a little less water, though, if, if it's going to actually be for modern drinkers. This would the, be blessed, the blessed barley wine. <laughs> yeah. The Germans tended to water down their beer quite a bit um, back at that time in terms of what we're used to. So, but yeah, they've got beer recipes in there. Hey, freaks and freakettes, what's up? My name is Sister Stroke, and if you're looking for some old school house or you just need something to get you moving through your day, then check out my show, Brick City House. We bring the bounce every Wednesday night, 1 p.m. CST, 7 p.m. GNT. And that's right there at chicagohousefm.com. Or you can find us on iTunes. Go to Electronica, scroll down till you see Chicago House FM, honey. We are right there. Take care, everybody. And don't forget, freak free. Hi there, folks. I'm Pastor Recoil, and I'm here to share with you a message about the double bacon rainbow. Because I like double bacon rainbow is really all you need to know. And do you know who else likes bacon? Seder. I would marry bacon before I'd marry a gay. Over at the-bunker.net. Can I just marry a pig? Just its pork belly. Check out Transmissions from the Bunker at the-bunker.net. I'm ignoring the new <laughs> promo because I don't want to make one. <laughs> So um, let's talk about the book itself, because that's what this all rotates around. And this is this is the the book that he gathered all of these spells and all of these different things and threw them into the book. What made this book the source to go to for this stuff, and what made it so religiously accepted in the magical realm? Or for, for I guess that'd be the best way I could possibly put it. You know what what is this book? What is this book? Um, it's a compilation of charms that was probably in many cases, the only one that was commonly available at the time. Um, and that's one of the reasons it became so popular because most, you know, for the most part, as I said, these things were being passed down in the family. Um, people would be secretive about it. They wouldn't want to give them out to people. In many cases, they would mumble the charms under their breath uh, when they used them on somebody else. And this book basically, as with many other books in magic, took a lot of these ideas and, you know, set them down and popularized them and made them available to a wider group of people. And so, uh, people started, people could circulate it. People could, you know, could keep a copy in their homes and read it. Um, it was very much in the, it's, it's kind of a, I think one person has said it was a self-help manual for, um, the 19th century. And that is really what it was. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was very, and it became very popular, especially after it was translated in English and then started, you know, just diffusing across the country. Do you have any examples to, to give an idea, to get an idea what this what this book actually is? Do you have any examples of what a charm or a spell might be in it? Okay, let's see here. Um, I mean, you've probably been asked that question a million times too. But to to get, I mean, this isn't this isn't a normal book of magic where you see like a pagan book of magic or something like that. This is very heavily Christian backed, religion based, mm-hmm. um, which for me is unusual. I've never quite seen anything quite like it, I guess, because there's not much like it in modern day, I guess. There's so, really not much like it. Um, what happened at some point was, uh, was when, uh, pagan faiths were revived, they were often came out of people with a background in magic, like, um, Alistair Crowley and Gerald Gardner were both, you know, practitioners of ceremonial magic. Uh, and but they want to do um, to have not, not Crowley so much. Both some extent. <laughs> Gardner wanted to, you know, revive in a sense, revive a pagan faith. And then they looked back at the last about 2000 years and said, oh, gee. Most of this stuff's Christian. What are we going to do with it? <laughs> and this is kind of where. Um, this sort of dialogue that's occurred between, say, paganism and the magical literature, if you want to call it a dialogue, for, you know, the since that time, which is, oh, gosh, what is this stuff? 
What, what are we going to do with it? You know, can we use some parts of it? Should we reword some of it? Should we toss it out and do something different? Should we go back to some of the stuff, say, in the Greek magical papyri? And um, Well, give us an example of a spell, if you can find okay. a couple. I've got one here. Um, this one's for worms. And I want to say it's not exactly clear on what worms are in Pennsylvania German thought. Uh, they can be all sorts of things. Um, it could be, it can actually be tapeworms. It can mean a bad case of acne. It can mean all sorts of stuff. Um, but this one's for men as well as cattle. So I'm guessing it's more toward the, um, Oh, wonderful. (laughs) Be roundworm. Parasitical worm. Mary, God's mother traversed the land, holding three worms close in her hand. One was white. The other was black. The third was red. And then it says, you're supposed to repeat this three times while stroking the person or animal. Um, so you've got a hand gesture in there. You've got this um, repetition, repetition of three, which is um, indicative of the Trinity. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that's 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 the charm right there. That one actually goes back to the 12th century. Um, usually it's associated with Job, mm-hmm. um, the biblical Job, the guy who had so much trouble with you know God and the devil. But uh, that was that that's an example of a charm that appears in the book. What is the difference between a charm and a spell? There are spells in there too, correct? I'm assuming. I think I I generally use the, in terms of my usage, uh, charms are usually verbal, mm-hmm. with some very, um, my, perhaps some minor uh, gestures and things of that sort. To me, um, a spell is uh, probably something a little bit more elaborate. Okay. That uh, involves some, you know, some. Um, intensive preparation or things like that, something more along the lines of ceremonial magic. And these, I want to say, are just my definitions. They're not, uh, they're not scholarly definitions. They're not things that have, you know, really been. It's hard to sometimes draw categories around these. Is what I'm trying to say. Okay. Um, so you know, a charm is generally a lot simpler, though I'd say, and it's, it's largely verbal in, in nature. So basically, if, there, if somebody was sick, they would just like for that right there, they would call them and say, okay, here's my set fee to go do this. The person would go in and do this, and that would be it. They would make their money and be out of there for the most part, correct? Mm-hmm. Wow. What a, what a good gig. <laughs> <laughs> but these people were also part of the community. So, uh, you know, they, it, was, it wasn't the same sense that we would have um, today. Mm-hmm. People knew who you were. They knew how good you were. If you did, you know, if you were not doing such a great job with it, you would get your reputation would get around. As I say, what happens when when you get this this incantation done to you, and you still got worms? You know, how's that reflect on you? <laughs> well, uh, there's um there's a lot of ways to look at that. Sometimes, uh, especially with modern uh, powwowing, it's a matter of it was seen as a matter of faith. Mm-hmm. Um, person did not have sufficient faith. Maybe you need to go and see some other person. And uh, there's kind of the acknowledgement that I think, where was it, uh, Little Big Man, the movie, where one of the characters said, sometimes the magic works and sometimes it doesn't. Um, <laughs> I love so that, that movie. Was, that, was the, that was the understanding. So it would be possible for someone, a, a particular spell to fail without people necessarily losing faith in magic as a whole or either in the uh, particular person who worked it. It's just like this time it didn't work and maybe... Maybe something was done incorrectly. Maybe you need to go talk to somebody else. Huh. Um, so that that was usually how they handled it. Wow, we're we're in the wrong gig. <laughs> yeah, we we are we are not in the right job. Moving along, uh, there there are still practitioners that do this kind of thing. I'm assuming are there still people that are in the back roads and stuff that are doing this? Oh yes, I've met a couple briefly. Uh, actually, I've met someone writing when I went down to to talk to them about the book there. I, I thought I'd do a, a small signing there. Um, there are still people who practice this. There's a book by, I think it's William Crable, I think his name is, uh, about these people. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's very, they still do this sort of, this sort of magic. Um, they, I mean, it has changed over the years. Mm-hmm. And they do not really want to talk about the long-lost friend as a source. They usually do not refer to printed sources now. Why is that? Um, uh, the long-lost friend, well, um, I think one of the main reasons that the long-lost friend got involved in this really nasty murder trial, and I believe it was in 1929. Um, it's in the book. Yeah, it's in the book. I have to look these, up these dates sometimes. But, yeah, uh, it was it was 28. 
when when it all happened, which the trial itself was in twenty nine. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. um basically Remeyer was a practitioner of this, and um, one of his former clients and uh, actually someone he knew from childhood got into his head that you know he was he was bewitched, and he was going around to these different practitioners to figure out you know who this was and try to get some relief from it. Um, and so, and as I, as we were talking about, instead of deciding, well, you know, this isn't the cause of this, witchcraft isn't the cause of it. He would just keep going back to different people and saying, uh, okay, this last person wasn't able to figure it out. Can you, and eventually somebody named Remire himself. And, uh, then he, uh, went out in order to get one of two things. It's not really clear on what exactly happened, but he's either going to get a lock of his hair or his own copy of the Long Lost Friend, which this guy had at his at his house out in uh, out near York, mm-hmm. and some he brought a couple of people with him uh, to help him out because Remire was really big, and he wasn't sure he could probably do it on his own, and he was right because <laughs> the three guys themselves pr- barely could do it on their own uh, to try to you know <laughs> immobilize him, and in the end they ended up killing him. Um, wow. And uh, so the long lost friend became part of the, you know, was involved in this. Even though there's nothing in the long lost friend saying, yeah, if you take this away from somebody, it's gonna, it's gonna deprive them of all their magical power. It never says that anywhere in the book. This is just something that it seems to have been assumed. Mm-hmm. And uh, but when it was a big mess in York, um, all the, you know, big city papers came in. They were saying, oh, yeah, look at this. Look at what's going on in this little town out in Pennsylvania. There's all these people who are, you know, practicing magic and using spells. Now, people are still practicing magic and using spells in the big cities, but they don't want to talk about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, that's that's not something they want to really get into because that, that would just, you know, it doesn't correspond with people's ideas of what should be going on. So um, it was rather embarrassing for the local people, and uh, they... And one of the consequences was people generally dissociated themselves from a long lost friend in that area. They said, well, you know, we don't have that. We don't use it um, because they don't want to be associated with, you know, people who go out and kill other people. It's funny because recently on the show, um, this last summer, I worked for a company. We test drive cars for the big three and we were driving down through Pennsylvania. I believe we actually might have been in Reading, but a uh, reading, but I'm not I can't remember exactly. But we were driving through the back roads and we went past this barn and there was a pentagram painted on the barn. And that that was one of the things that stru- that struck me on this path. And I, I thought it very peculiar to be out in the middle of nowhere. And here's a pentagram painted on a barn. And I thought, wow, that's. That's really weird. You know, I didn't quite understand what it was. And I went on Facebook and put a post up. And then Lobo here responds quickly. What did, well, I don't remember what you posted. You Was uh, some kind of a protection charm it's, or something? Yeah, it's hex magic. It's protection. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you'd said, yeah, hex magic, blah, blah, blah. I and I'm like. I them in my drawer and upstairs in my desk. I'm like, this kind of stuff goes on. Because, you know, again, pentagrams, you think Motley Crue, you know. <laughs> you <laughs> think the devil and summoning rituals and demons and stuff. And I'm like, there's a pentagram painted on the side of this barn. And I'm thinking we're in the middle of Amish country. This is not clicking at all. I thought it was really, really strange. And then I noticed that people in the countryside all had these different flags and stuff all hanging off of their houses with different symbols and various, like, really, I guess, cantrips. I don't know what the heck they were. They were symbols. And again, people fired back with, yeah, that's hex hex magic. That's that's Pennsylvania Uh hex magic. Yeah, what's the big deal? And I'm like, I don't know. It doesn't brain, (laughs) you know. So... You know, I guess there are people that still are out practicing this. Mm-hmm. Where does one go to find a powwower? Do you run an ad in the local paper or Craigslist? Yeah, exactly. What do you go? Do you, do yeah. you want pow- Craigslist or what? Looking for a powwower to keep milk from getting sour? You know. At this point, there are a couple of people who um, have actually published books on the subject. Um, one notable name is Chris Bellardi, um, and those probably. If I were saying I want to get in touch with a powwower, I would probably, you know, get in touch with one of those people. Um, I'm not, I'm not part of that particular, that particular network. I know Chris, but you know, mm-hmm. I don't, I don't know a lot of powwowers just because I feel as somebody who, who had anthropological training, 
I feel kind of weird about going in and talking to people about things. It's not, uh, <laughs> you know, it's just like, hi, I'm, I'm some guy writing a book. What are you doing? Can I look at what you're doing? You know, seriously. I mean, what I just feel in there. <laughs> yeah, I, I just feel that it's, you know, in some way it's, unless I'm going to really commit to doing some sort of study, I think that it, it's inappropriate for me to get involved. That's, and that may be, that's kind of a strange perspective, I think, to have. But that's that's not really. You know, it's, I, it's really like strange. yeah, it's like it's they're doing. They've got their business going on, and I, you know, I'm what I'm looking at is this book, and this book in many cases doesn't parallel quite what they're doing today. Mm -hmm. um, one example is that um, a modern power, or as I said, would say, well. You have to have faith for these things to work. Whereas kind Holman of the crux says, of all magic, though, yeah. for the most part. But here's the thing. Holman says in his introduction, these things work, and that's why you should have faith. Yeah. Hmm. He turns it around. Yeah, different it's perspective, like, saying the yeah. same thing. Well, well, but in a sense, it's the, it's the opposite. He said, I went out and I did this and this works, and this proves that God exists. You don't have to believe in God. In fact, you know, he's, he's concerned about you know, atheism. And so what he's saying is that you guys shouldn't be atheists because, hey, I got charms, they work, and that proves it. That just hmm. proves that charms work. Doesn't mean God's behind it. <laughs> well, that's 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 what his that's what his particular True. argument is. Yeah. Understandable. Yeah, understandable. Yeah, I'm not gonna I'm not going to justify Holman. No, 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 no. We wouldn't expect no. you to. Holman had some unusual views on things. I think that's I like think. saying that uh, my Dungeons and Dragons dice work because I have Dungeons and Dragons books. No, they yeah. work no matter if I have the books or not. They're just hey, dice. I have both. <laughs> <laughs> well, to me, when I look at this as a whole, this is something that me and Lobo were talking about off the air right before we got on the show. When I look at this stuff as a whole and from a distance, it, to me it mocks of, of voodoo, um, like Haitian voodoo or Southern voodoo, where these are people that were coming over and practicing these things. That's why I asked about the pagan connections, where these people are coming over and practicing this stuff. And it looks to me like all they simply did was took out, took out subject A for from the sentence and replaced it with God or with this or with that, because mm -hmm. some of these charms and stuff are written kind of weird. They don't, some of these things don't flow like the way a normal religious text would flow. So when I look at it, I go, Oh, all they did here was take a pagan spell, take something out of it and insert mm -hmm. a little bit of Christianity into it to make it fly. And then, then that tomb, and in that sense, I should say that that that's what makes it seem like it to me. How people went, okay, we'll let this slide because you're using this name here, you're invoking this, and you're invoking that, instead of invoking this, this, and this, or praising mm -hmm. this and that. And that's what it strikes me as, because when you look at voodoo or Haitian religions and things like that, that's all they've done. They've just replaced loas with or saints with loas. So. Well, I, for my part, I'm a little cautious about that with the long lost friends, simply because if there are pagan sources for the material, if it's pre-Christian material, we don't have those sources. Yeah, it, I mean, it's uh, it's generally in, would have been circulated orally, and then it would have been once again what was written down was written by, down by people who you know were from the church and didn't really want to get into you know well why am i going to spend my time writing down a bunch of you know prayers for people who you know don't believe in god mm -hmm. um so i'm that's why i'm cautious about that but i can say i can see it okay in many cases well, I'm going to ask you one more thing, and then we'll we'll let you go. Before these books were out, obviously this stuff appears like it was around before these books came out. Was this something that was just uh, an oral tradition, like that was passed down from person to person in a family, like a shamanic kind of thing? How did a person become a powwow before all this, before there was a source to go buy a book? Or even modern, from what it sounds like modern now, if a person wants to become a powwow, how would you or how did you go about doing it? Well, uh, it's mainly, I think, uh, something that is, it is handed down orally. It's something that's usually handed down within the family. It's um, often something that was um, transmitted across um, sex lines. That's not necessarily true in all cases, but, you know, mm -hmm. a man has to teach a woman, a woman has to teach a man. Mm -hmm. um, and so there would be all of this training. Um, one difference from what I would call um, shamanic practices is that I don't traditionally um, sh shamanism is thought of as you have to go through this ordeal in which you become ill and then are healed and then the fact that you are this have been this wounded person allows you to go to the next stage mm -hmm. that's something I don't see a lot of 
Um, but it was this was they were basically handed down through the family line. So in that sense, where they're being taught uh, this this body of lore, it is definitely you know it's it's along the same lines as shamanism. A lot of these groups, a lot of these different uh, I don't want to call them religious backgrounds, but for lack of a better term, they seem to be at least in my experience they seem to be much the same. Like in my family, there's stuff that's passed from generation to generation to generation that's never written in a book. It's never, it's not, it's word of mouth. It's always been word of mouth. It'll always be word of mouth. So I I can understand where it would be imperative. I mean, there's been times where members of my family throughout the years have wanted to get information written down. And then it's like, yeah, maybe we shouldn't be doing this. But Mm -hmm. to see that this was written down is a statement to how important it really was to the gentleman when he did it. Mm-hmm. You know, because I mean, for, for lack of a better term, in in my family, there's you look at it like, okay, don't don't write it down because there's people that will will use it against you, or they may look at it different. Because my family, part of my family, comes from an island. If you had this stuff written down, that's like proof that you're doing it and you're out. See you later, goodbye. Yeah, yeah. So for this guy to do that, it's a testament. But he also had the he also had the backing of church officials that were like, all right, well, we're kind of gonna turn a blind eye to this. I won't say so much they're backing, but at least they weren't going to bother him about right, it. Right, right, right. <laughs> they're just gonna they're just gonna leave him alone. Um, you know, when in in my family line, the people came down to the island and they were like, either you do this or you die. Mm-hmm. So that's why they changed a lot of what they did. They you know they replaced their the gods that they had with Joseph and Mary and you know all the saints. But still, in behind the scenes, they were still practicing their same stuff. They just kept it quiet. If it was brought into the public eye and the, the, the Catholic priest that was involved, a lot of times mm-hmm. the, the priest that was involved on the island was doing the same things. But if the archbishop came down, they're like, all right, we need someone to, to kill to prove that this is, you know, <laughs> we, we don't see this right. So, you know, let's go get Juan. We'll take him out in the field and machete him. And, you know, everybody like, oh, all right, well, we know we're supposed to keep it quiet. Whereas this guy, you know, Homan had it written down and he, like, like you said, he didn't have the backing of the church, but they weren't going to, they weren't going to crucify him mm-hmm. for lack of a better term. They were like, all right, we're just going to say, yeah, whatever you're doing is fine. Just keep it outside of the church. And also, it's, it's I should point out, Holman's other motivation was that he really needed the money. Mm. Um, he's very, and he's very upfront <laughs> about that. Um, he was, I mean, the other book we were talking about, um, The Friend in Need, he also said, yeah, I was sick for a long time, and I, you know, I, I was really down on my luck. I'm going to publish this book because I need the money, too. Well, I mean, he's just, yeah, he was very upfront about it. He, you know, he did, goes through this long justification of what he's doing and how good it's going to help people, and you know, how people from the church shouldn't worry about it. And, oh, well, yeah, by the way, he needs the money, too. That, that was his explanation. <laughs> he just kind of threw that in at the end. Hey, well, uh, but it was a major yeah. move for him to, to be able to do that, I would agree. You know, that was something that was very unusual mm. to publish this. What, what's your website? Where do you? Where can people buy this book if they want to get it? Because it is a neat little read of somebody. We have a lot of listeners of the show that are very into magic or just very into really cool old history. And just to have the book for that alone, I, I devoured it. I got it. I read it all the way through. I liked it so much that I actually ordered a copy for Lobo. I bought him a copy and mailed <laughs> it out to him. Excellent. Sitting right next to me. It's it's a really neat book to have, just just even for a historical look, to go back and look through the history, because this isn't something that is, that is talked about normally. This isn't, uh, when I went looking for it, I had a really hard time finding out information about it. It's one of those those back closet history things that really isn't discussed that often from what I could tell. I didn't hear learn about it in school. But if people want to get this, where can they go? Do you have a website? We've got a website, which is danharms.wordpress.com. Uh, Papers followed from Attic Window. That's where I generally um, post uh, my thoughts on it, on magic and other topics. Uh, this book is, actually, is available through Amazon. And uh, from directly from Llewellyn, and probably you can order at your local bookstore. And I generally like to encourage people to support their local independent bookstores. So if you're interested in it, go in and order a copy there. Yeah, it's it's not that expensive either. Usually a book this size and like this would cost a lot more money. Um, it says seventeen ninety five on the cover up, but it, I paid less than that for it on Amazon. I think it's a good size book. Usually books like this are like thirty something dollars or something like that, and. Uh, it's pretty neat. I think you've gotten it, for the most part, word for word from the original, from what I could tell. And you've got a neat little forward in there describing the history and a lot of the stuff mm-hmm. that we've talked about tonight. And I'm also particularly proud of the notes in back because you can yeah. go out and see where I found the charm, you know, if there are any variants, 
what whether the German is saying something slightly different, you know, things of that sort. That's what I really, really liked about it. And that's what tells me that this is a pretty close, you know, this is pretty much what the book was because you've been so thorough in your investigation of it. That was one of the reasons like, oh, my God, I get this guy on the air. He knows what he's talking about because he's got everything in the back of the book to follow his footsteps. A lot of people that do this don't do that kind of stuff. It's like, oh, this is a trade secret. How I find this information out. You're like, this is where I got it. Go check it out. Yeah. And I thought that was really, really sweet and really cool of you to do. The thing that impresses me the most is when you're when you're flipping through the back pages, you don't only have the the um, description, you also have the chemical makeup, which is mm-hmm. fascinating. I mean, everything from and you the know, actual uh, German too. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> I mean, this one right here, uh, seven oh four broomcorn, uh, sorghum vulgar. You, you, no, you. Most people just say, yeah, it's broomcorn. Yeah, that's fine. I mean, you have the chemical makeup of uh, sulfuric ether. I mean, it's awesome. I mean, this is awesome. <laughs> and I also tried to throw in some notes as to what, you know, in terms of chemically will work and what won't. And right. I, right. I don't yeah, want to say the, that's uh, not – I don't recommend using any of the charms within without, you know, really <laughs> investigating them. But I tried to let you know, hey, this is actually something that people use in modern medicine or, yeah, don't do this. Yeah, like what? <laughs> there's one right here on. There's one here on this page, rapeseed, and it gives a scientific name, and then it says no known benefits for edema are noted. So you're like, okay, <laughs> they used it. It doesn't really work. So it's, which is awesome. I mean, that's you're not you don't find most people when they put out a book, they're like, yeah, we're, we're just gonna leave this. You actually have information in here that's like it's pertinent neat, information. It's, it's magically <laughs> and scientifically minded, <laughs> which is something you don't see in anything no. like this at all. So props to you. That was very good. Thank you. Well, thank you very much for being on Project Archivist, Dan. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Dan. And as I like to say, that was Mr. Daniel Harms. I probably need to quit using Mr. and Mrs. in front of everybody when we have him on the show. Eh. It's kind of a show of respect for me. So it's just the way that, you know, I was raised to be respectful of people. But anyways. (laughs) I was raised by wolves, so we know where that is. (laughs) So that was cool. He's a nice guy. I like talking to him. He's really easy to talk to. He's real easy to talk to. And he's a Lovecraft nut, too. We're going to be having him back on for our promised Lovecraft show at some point or another. He's We talked to him off the air a little bit, and he's agreed to do it. Now I'm really looking forward to that. <laughs> oh, yeah. Absolutely. That's going to be great. But, um, I mean, he freaking wrote a Lovecraft book when he was 17, for God's sakes. I mean, how great is that? Yeah, I didn't. I had no idea the guy was such an accomplished writer or anything. <laughs> Me neither. He's throwing all this stuff at us, and I'm like, whoa. I think I even texted you, this is going to be a piece of cake while the interview was going on. Yeah, it was fun talking about it. And, you know, it was fun talking to him. It was, it was really cool. Anytime we have somebody on where I learn something new, like I read this book, and then the stuff we talked about tonight, some of it wasn't even in the book, so it was mm. added flavor to it to go along with it. And this is going to fit real nicely up on my shelf up here. And it's not expensive. It's cool. It's, it's again, it's one of those, it's like when we had Robert Schneck on the show. It's one of those really cool, neat, historical, neat books mm-hmm. that are off the beaten path that I, I tell people, hey, this is something you might want to pick up. Moving on, this is probably going to be our last recorded show for the year at this point. I think, I, yeah, I'll say it is. There's, I don't, I hardly doubt that we can get another episode out because if you're hearing this right now, I am probably down in Hermosillo, Mexico, for work again, busting my butt in seventy degree, eighty degree heat. I'm sorry, which is gonna suck because up in Michigan Aww. it's cold right now. Oh, Aww. first world problems with Ooh, Rogan. I know. <laughs> yeah, you're first world problems, Rogan in the third world nation. Yeah, how great is that? I either have this show. Uh, I will have already have left. We've recorded this show on Saturday night, and I will be leaving on Monday morning. So I'm not sure when it's going to post. It might not even post till I got back. So maybe, maybe I'm back home by now by the time this goes up. Maybe but I'm back home. maybe to you from the future. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm going to be going down from the 10th to the 21st, and I will be coming back on the 21st. I'll be coming home on the day that the Mayan calendar ends. I'm going to be down in Mexico. Um, you know, I'll be in the air, hopefully flying when whatever Quinsacoddle or whatever is not going to happen doesn't happen. Quinsacoddle, Quinsacoddle. No, there's a there's a, a cartoon my kids watch, uh, Bubble Guppies, and they what? have pretzel. Yeah, it's called Bubble Guppies, 
And it's one of the characters that was in it was it was coming to get him, and it was supposed to be a Mayan temple they were in. And the guy's name was Pretzel Quaddle, and he loved to eat pretzels. It was nice. I don't, I don't know. Nice. By now, I've probably, well, maybe not. I can't say right now because I can't see where or what order things are going to fall in. But the outtakes episode is done, recorded, and ready to go. Posted it quite up to be. Usually, I would get stuff down and I put it up, and I just put it in reserve so I can hit the button and it goes up to the site. I haven't quite done that with this one yet because I'm waiting for anybody who wants to call and leave any Christmas holiday messages. And we already got a few of the voicemails now. But if you want to call in and leave some kind of a message for us to play uh, during that show. The number is 734-681-0459. If you want to pop us an email, that's projectarchivist at gmail.com. Damon did actually send us an email in regards to our last show about how I was talking about the plate tectonics and all that. Did you read that? No, I didn't. I didn't get a chance to. I think he's right, but he had made a statement that uh, he politely called you out. And I think he's right, too, because he made a statement that you'd said that the mountains on that side of the country are a lot older than the mountains on this side of the country and something to do with the earthquakes and stuff like that. And he shot back with, well, no, we have more earthquakes and things like that because we're on the ring of fire. I can't remember the exact. Yeah, he's, yeah, okay, I'm going to call him out on it. <laughs> I'm going to call him out on it. Uh, he said the a mountain big, range, yeah, he, they are within the ring of fire, which is true. He's just on the outside of the ring of fire. However, the mountain range on the on the west coast of the of the United States is a younger mountain range than the one over here. The Rockies are considered an old mountain range. That's why they're 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 not as high. Let me read the email. All right, you do that. Hey guys, I was listening to the new show and heard Lobo say that the mountains on the west coast are so young that the ground is like liquid. Sorry, but you're off by a bit. While our mountains might be young, they're made up of granite. As a matter of fact, there is a huge mass of granite that runs up the west coast up in the Yucatans. The reason that we are get bigger, better earthquakes is that we sit on the ring of fire and has a mass of fault stress lines from North American plate smashing into the Pacific plate. I probably read that wrong, but hey, it makes sense. <laughs> The granite actually helps deaden the effects of the earthquakes. The Midwest and East Coast is made up a lot more sandy soil, sandy soft soil, which transfer the power of the earthquake a lot more efficiently. But since the East Coast doesn't have the bloody ring of fire, you guys are less fault lines and less less pressure on them. And I think he's right on a vast majority of this. Okay, um, here we go. It's hold on a second. Let me let me pull up. Let me pull up my my stats. I hate having to do this. This is where he turns into a transformer of Bill Nye. Well, uh, my wife calls me all kinds of things. I'm, having, I'm trying to do this on my freaking phone. Just pull it up in your computer. Yeah, it might. whenever I bring up Google on this, it freaking does stupid things. I'm trying to bring it up now. All right there, Damon. Next time, we're, <laughs> the next show that we record, we're going to have you on, and we're going to talk this out. I think our, <laughs> I think our views as to why earthquakes happen are... Uh, and why why they react differently on either sides of the country? Uh, and mostly because right now you can't find the facts to and back I can't them up, but find you know they're out there. Freaking thing. I know. Well, the thing is, is I li I just listened to a thing from uh, that was on NPR on This American Life, and they were talking about the reasoning behind it, and that's where I got my information from. And okay. then I had this conversation with a geologist friend of mine, and he told me the same thing. So, so just to be clear here, you're going to call Damon Reaper out to have a conversation yes. about geology and earthquakes and the ring of fire on the air on the show. Yes. Okay. Because <laughs> I know he'll take us up on it. Just because he used to co-host the Aether with me on occasion and I haven't had him on in a while. There you go. All right. Well, getting back on track, the outtakes episode is done, mixed down, recorded, and it's hysterical. My 17-year-old daughter was in here crying. She was laughing so hard. Mm -hmm. um, the Shushtioso interview, which um, originally took place, it took place a while ago, man. I didn't, we recorded it back in September of 2010, I think it was, um, which doesn't sound, now that I say that, it doesn't sound right because I don't think the show was around back then. But uh, the sound yeah. file says 2010 on it so maybe you know what when you guys hear the show the date that i give you is to when the show was recorded might not be right but we were did i say did i say 2011 or 2010 i don't remember but either way we recorded it last september of last year i believe it was so obviously it's not 2010 as i correct myself out loud i say at the beginning of that show we recorded the show with shush and it was his first ever interview of any kind, so he was really nervous, and he did a lot of ums and ahs, and sometimes there's parts of the recording that get really weird. 
Um, but I never got rid of it. I kept it around. So we did have him back on again. He said, can I come back on and re-record it? Well, our schedules were weird. We never got around to it. And that show was what became the Something Wicked This Way Comes episode. But I still had that around and I kept it because he tells a pretty interesting story of how this guy gets involved with magic and how he grew up and how he was exposed to this kind of stuff. And I, I always thought this was a really cool story. So I bugged him and said, hey, do you care if I ever just mix this down? So when we throw that episode up, it's not really a normal Project Archivist episode. It's just something that I'm throwing up there to give you guys something extra because it's the holiday season and our release schedule has been funky and all this stuff. So when you hear it, the audio is not as normal as I would like it to be. Even the audio on this show wasn't as normal as I'd like it to be because we had some Skype issues. But, um, you know, take it with a grain of salt. I think most of the people, I think pretty much everybody out there will still enjoy it. And we are going to have him on there here again because he's got he's got a lot of really interesting stories, a lot of really wacky stories. Um, yeah, he does. Because <laughs> after the episode, when you guys listen to that show, we had him on off the air for another hour with him telling another story of his life that I'm bugging the hell out of him trying to get him to release it as a book. And he says he's going to eventually. I think that's it. I think that's it. I think that's all we've got to say for the rest of this year. <laughs> rest of the year. Well, this is our last recorded show for the year. Everything else sure. we're going to be doing, this stuff is already pre-recorded stuff. Sure. So, you know, we're going to be pretty much done until I would say the first, of, you know, to the beginning of January at that point. That's all I can think of to say. I say it at the end of the outtakes show, but thank you very much, everybody, for being a fan of the show. Thank you for listening. Thank you to everybody that knew that's come along and found us. Thanks to everybody who found us on Stitcher. I got Twitter up and running from what it appears. So, you know, yep. thanks to everybody who's following us on Twitter now for posting our episodes up on there. Thank you to everybody who contributes in the Facebook page. You know, that's pretty much it. I'm really thankful to have you people listening to the show. I'm really glad you're out there. That's it. You got <laughs> anything else to say? <laughs> <laughs> no. We all set? Yeah, we're all set. All right, folks, this has been Rojan. Peace out from the D. This is Lobo from Connecticut. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Thank you.